0: You're listening to the Boss Business of Surgery series, episode 114. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Maggie Brooke. We are talking about how to recognize gender bias in medicine. I know we've all experienced this regardless of our gender, so we thought we would share our experiences and where we think medicine could improve when it comes to gender bias. Understanding how being a female surgeon and how we interact with the world is a challenge that is ever ongoing. There's only a few days left to sign up for the Difficult Partner, which is part of the year-long Become the Boss MD program. So head to bosssurgery.com for more information. Welcome surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we needed to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. Welcome back. I've been looking forward to this guest for a long time. We were talking on the Invisible Women, Data Bias in a World Designed for Men by Carolyn Perez. So I'm really excited to hear all her insights because she said that she read this book and changed her practice. And so I'm really excited to hear more from Dr. Maggie Brooke. She is a general surgeon in Denver. Go ahead and introduce yourself, Maggie. Tell us more about yourself.
1: Uh, yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited about this as well. I am a general surgeon. I'm working in Denver and My biggest interest clinically and professionally is Improving and providing really high quality care for a vulnerable population. I'm dedicated to safety net care. That's a setting that I trained in and was most drawn to in training. And then I've been a general surgeon out of training for four years and am working in the safety net with a similar population in Denver to what I trained with in Oakland. I'm at an academic affiliated institution, so I'm really interested in surgical education and mentorship of female surgeons in particular. But I think mentorship of our male surgeons to understand what it's like to be a female surgeon is almost equally important to helping the women get through training. So those are my biggest interests.
0: And I know you (laughs) and I have both been in um, a female-dominated surgery group where we see a lot of these issues coming up. So what were some of the big issues that you've seen so far? And tell us how this book helped you find some of the answers to some of the things that you had unconsciously noticed. Yeah,
1: absolutely. So a little context for my own history, I grew up in a household where feminist was not a dirty word. My father and mother both identified as feminists from the time I can remember and really raised me to say that out loud in such a way that it actually got me, me, me uh, made fun of in public high school in, in, and <laughs> in, in suburban Kansas. So I took my first women's studies class in seventh grade at our public junior high school. I really thought this was something I knew all about. And then I met a wonderful woman who's a good friend and a neighbor of mine and we're moms of kids in the same class. And she is this like fabulous, enthusiastic, super smart woman in tech. And she basically brought up this book to me. I'd never heard of it and said, you have to read this. This has changed the entire trajectory of my career. And so I thought that if this was a book that did this for this like really wonderful woman I met that I should check it out as well. I got the audiobook and listened to it starting a couple days later. And within minutes of listening to the audiobook, which I'd highly recommend because the author is a great reader and has like a wonderful voice to listen to, I just found myself just recognizing almost every word of this is important, but also feeling this sort of like quiet rage of radicalization happening. And that really continued throughout the entire book. Um, it does not address female physicians or female surgeons specifically, um, or in any way during the book, but like almost every chapter, I found something that felt really recognizable to me on kind of a visceral level of all the ways that the world just isn't built for us. And what I found myself thinking over and over, as I listened to it with a little bit of anger and a little bit of sadness that just, it isn't built for us. They don't care. And, Women's experiences are just not taken into account, both in the medical world and outside of it, that we're over 50% of the population, but are seen as an aberration from the normal when it comes to the way that the world is designed.
0: It's funny you mention that because this, of course, goes way back even just to the the Bible when you talk about like Adam was built and created and we were basically like a rib from Adam kind of thing. So it's almost huh? like the, the default. And I really liked the beginning of the book where she talks about how it's not so much this being an overt thing, it's invisible. And that's the biggest problem is she mentioned that one of the most important things to say about the gender data gap is that it's not generally malicious or even deliberate, quite the opposite. It's simply the product of a way of thinking that has been around for millennia and is therefore a kind of not thinking, a double not thinking even. Men go without saying and women don't get said at all because when we say human, on the whole, we mean man. So this has been sort of a generalization for a while. And I thought her point was really helpful, it said the reason why it's hard to pinpoint is that it has been the default for so long and not questioned, and lots of assumptions So a lot of times it is missing to where it's hard to talk about because it's hard to talk about an absence of something.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And like I think that's a helpful way to contextualize it because I think when you bring up gender bias, it's a little bit similar to racial bias and that feeling of white fragility that bubbles up in a lot of us before you have to think about it and quelch it. And I think it's really similar that the men in the room, when you bring up gender bias, immediately go to a place of being defensive and like, I love women and I'm not sexist. And it's not about personal, it's not about personal bias. It's about the way that these structures are created and the way that institutions are built and the way that women have been contextualized in our culture to be seen and interpreted. And those are not controllable. And, and women are as equally guilty of gender bias against women as men are. So I think that's one of the helpful ways to put it. For in particular men, when you bring up this topic, it's like, no, 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 this isn't something that's an individual thing coming from you. This is a problem that we all know is there and we women all feel is there, but it's really hard to describe it. And it's really hard to make men understand that it's real, partially because the data is lacking.
0: Right. And I think that was her point. Exactly. A lot of times these studies are not parsed out to male versus female, which is interesting. So let's talk about stereotyping. So I know stereotyping, a lot of times we just make assumptions. What were some of the stereotypes that you've experienced and knowing that you came in with a little bit more awareness of gender bias? Well, it's interesting. I actually have
1: probably a more common experience now, but relatively still uncommon experience where my entering class as an intern at UCSF East Bay, where I trained, was all female. So we were six of six women, which I think is really uncommon. And it's interesting, we all came in, we talked about this after we started, we all came in with the same thought, which was, I I didn't go into surgery to be part of an all-female team. Everyone was kind of worried about drama and conflict within the (laughs) class. This was going to be so challenging. I think it was something that like the attendings were getting ready for us, were really worried about too somehow. And then it was just lovely. Like we had absolutely no conflict. There was absolutely no drama. And it wasn't necessarily that we were all best friends. We just we're able to split the work equally. We were able to split the experiences equally. We were told frequently by classes ahead of us in training that we weren't going to succeed because we were too nice to one another, because we didn't steal cases from one another, because we didn't cut each other down for experiences. And instead, I feel like what we came out with was we all had a really equitable training experience. And it'd be like, oh, you did the Whipple yesterday. Okay, well, great. Well, I'll do the one today. And then like if there's one tomorrow, somebody else can do it. And then everybody got that equal experience. And that ultimately, it wasn't important to cut each other down to get better training or to get more out of our attendings or something like that, that actually the time and the experience and the learning can be split equally in a way that benefits us all. And so that was a way that I think all of our expectations, even as women, really got turned around. And then I graduated with an all-female class. So my chief class was all-female, and I was the only common member of these two classes because of the like weirdness of research, difference research periods of time. So I gradu- I started with five other women, and I graduated with three other women, and I was the only common member of those groups and had the same experience. We were just, we're still incredibly close. We Text each other probably one to forty times a day, still four years out of training, and ask each other all sorts of questions and for advice and kind of commiserate about the experience of transitioning to attending hood, which has been really invaluable in kind of quelling or understanding my own imposter syndrome as I entered the world of being the attending and being the person who has to make the final decisions. So so I had a really, really good experience in that way.
0: It's interesting you say that because there's two stereotypes that you see there. One is the stereotype like, oh, if we have too many women here, there'll be cat fighting and stuff. But then you had <laughs> the other stereotype of the male-dominated thing of, of cutthroat, which is unfair to them as well. And how fascinating that you all were able to show like what happens when the gender of the surgery residents change, just the simple change of how we've been raised in society to be different. And if we celebrate the differences and see what can we learn from just the difference alone and drop the stereotypes, how we can see that it can benefit everyone to say we can actually be cooperative and not have to be cutthroat. So it challenges a stereotype long held in surgery.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing I got to see over time was the way that having the ratio of women in the room changes the tenor of an entire residency program to be a little bit more collaborative and a little bit less cutthroat. And I think also the way that like having more women, having more people of color, having more diversity within your program, then kind of begets diversity. And my program has become increasingly diverse since I started. And I don't know that having our class specifically was responsible for that. That's really hard to ever prove. But I think just the As the tables slight, start to kind of turn, it, it begets even more change and people become more supportive of their colleagues who are underrepresented in medicine. And I got to see this as there were a couple of women who had had children in residency, but not a ton. And then the amount of us who had children in residency like steadily increased during the time I was in training. And it really went from being kind of like a out for yourself, you've got to just fight through it to people supporting one another. And I had the great experience of pumping for a year of residency as a trauma chief and having everybody nothing but supportive of that. And I think that gets better almost automatically just by the pure factor of numbers.
0: I love saying this about uh, my own residency. Um, When I was a associate program director of our residency. We had a class, I think it was a year or two behind me, where we started being very conscious of making sure people had maternity and paternity leave. Majority of residents, all but one of our chief residents took advantage of the family leave policy. And interestingly enough, the only person who did not take advantage of it was the only female in that class. (laughs) It was all paternity leave that was taken. So it's funny because when I mentioned taking the family leave, everyone's making the assumption like, oh, the women are taking all this space. And it was really funny that particular class, the only one who did not take advantage of it was the female resident. (laughs) That's amazing. And I think that brings up
1: the way that paternity leave, and she has a, a segment on this in the book, but on the way that paternity leave and actually particularly required paternity leave and national policies about how you can split family leave among partners and things like that really helps decrease that gender wage gap and also the glass ceiling gender promotion gap, all of that. So when you think about the way that several European countries split leave policies, and they do it intentional way that almost forces the male partner to take some percentage of that leave... It has huge benefits in terms of all the invisible and unpaid labor that women do in their families, which I think is something that most of us are really, really familiar with. Yeah. The way that the baseline expectation is that the work at home is women's work, regardless of who brings home what paycheck and how hard people are working sort of during their working day. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I think first starting with the biologic fact that to carry said child must be a female. Like we, we that is not optional. We can't actually change that, you know. Well, we won't go anywhere other exceptions, but you know it gets complicated.
1: But I mean I love that movie Junior where Arnold Schwarzenegger has the baby. So yeah. <laughs> maybe <something. laughs>
0: I wouldn't rule out someday for sure, but at least currently the biologic fact is that we can't, you know, outsource that. You can outsource everything else. So, first is recognizing that we literally cannot outsource that. And so there has to be some protections of that too, because the stereotypical surgeon, however, is not going to protect themselves universally. I know that I did not when I was resident. I was at shock trauma and my second trimester during the summer. So we were incredibly busy. So my kid ended up having oligodramnios and ended up having a crash C-section, most likely from not particularly taking care of myself very well. But at the same time, I wonder how I would have felt about someone telling me to take time off. I probably would have resented that too. So it's definitely a fine balance of allowing people to do so and not forcing them to do things that they don't want to do. So what is your take on that?
1: Yeah, I think ultimately when it comes to training, the power imbalance is such that like, to some extent, I think you do have to put it out there that people actually are required to do the things that they need to do to be healthy and to take care of their families. Because you can't actually rely on them necessarily to advocate for themselves. And I would hope that every residency program takes their residents seriously and listens to what they need. But we all know that's not necessarily true. And then also we're taught through both medical school and residency, the best trainee is the person who doesn't need help, who doesn't need to ask questions, who doesn't need to ask for anything ever. And that's probably not the most healthy lesson that we teach ourselves, but it's really hard to then flip that and say, okay, well, I really actually do need to be there for my kids' one-year doctor's appointment. And that means maybe I need to leave early this day or I really need to go and get my pre- prenatal care because, I mean, there have been multiple studies showing that women women surgeons have substantially worse pregnancy outcomes than the general population. So I think to some extent we have to at least put policies in place that allow the residents to, without having to advocate for themselves, take that leave and time that they need. I think forcing people is a little bit more difficult because, of course, we also have to get our training and we have to see the cases and we have to get those experiences for our patients down the line. So there's probably a fine line there. But I do think the policies have to be in place that allow people to do the things without asking or feeling like they're asking for something special or extra.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. I can tell you another example. That I just remembered now in the Army in residency, they were unhappy about their numbers, about women not passing the PT test postpartum. I forgot exactly how long we had to do the first PT test, which was twice a year. But because they were a little bit disappointed in the numbers of people passing after postpartum, they decided a blanket statement that all postpartum women would have to do mandatory PT. And I was doing my children's rotation in DC. So I would have to drive back to Walter Reed to do mandatory physical training at 4 p.m., which means that I have to eliminate half of my rounds and things like that. I was like, this is a way of taking a very good idea and just train wrecking it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And there's a classic thing, I think, in residency where if you ask for something, sometimes you're going to get what you want, but not in the way that you want it. And so I think that is something that obviously administrators and leaders of residency programs have to be thoughtful about the way that they implement these policies and probably involve some at least senior level residents in those decisions and what they're going to put in place. I mean similarly I my residency, I think very reasonably and with very good intentions, put into place a policy that women in their women trainees in their third trimester, or I should say pregnant trainees in their third trimester, regardless of gender, could not take 24 hour calls. Which I think was a great idea. And I think a lot of residencies have put into place similar policies. But the problem was, and I was an administrative chief resident, so I knew this very inherently. That just meant that you had to do two 12 hour shifts on weekends rather than taking a Saturday to 24. And I was pregnant during my research years and then again during my fifth year. So when I was pregnant, during my fifth year as a chief, I also had a toddler at home. So to me, I would rather take that 24 hour call and have some amount of time with my toddler because otherwise I almost barely saw him. So that trade-off was not really helpful for me. What would have been helpful was to take a 12 hour call and not have to supplement it with like an additional 12 hours. Cause we all know that two 12s doesn't really equal a 24, but that just wasn't possible from an actual staffing perspective. Like we didn't physically have enough people to cover the call in that way. So I think just the way we implement these policies has to be really thoughtful uh, and thoughtful about the resident's experience, including those who have families at home, not just the sort of pregnant or gestational partner.
0: Oh, yeah. I love talking about pregnancy. This is probably the easiest time that you're going to have because they are with you the whole time. I knew what they were eating. I knew that they were fine. But as soon as it was delivered, now I have to worry about childcare and where the kid is and if everything's going okay. So I completely agree when it comes to policies for us to be actively involved and being thoughtful about it, not just having things done to us. So if we really want these policies that we want is to be very vocal about what we need and to be a part of the whole process of determining it and evaluating it, because just like you said, be careful what you ask for. You just might get it and not quite in the the version that you want. This is a really old movie, but definitely worth looking back at. It's Brendan Fraser and Elizabeth Hurley in Bedazzled. It was, oh gosh, like a couple of decades ago, but he was given wishes. And the whole movie is what happens when you get the wish that you want. It's a hilarious movie. Yeah, I I know exactly what you're talking about. I remember remember that movie as well.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, I think that's true. I think those of us who are in academics, but I think this could easily be extrapolated to senior surgeons in a group where they have partners who are going through these similar stages, having a child early in attending hood is not a lot easier and in some ways is harder than having a child in training, because at least in training, you have some sort of enforced protections. But I think those of us who are in a position of prominence, power, privilege, or just the ability to advocate for others who maybe can't advocate for themselves as effectively need to help advocate for these sort of changes and for policies that do include the people who they're going to affect. And I think this gets better as more women are entering senior stages of their career where there used to be a lot fewer women and slowly because of the pipeline or more are getting to that position. That's where we can help one another out. I think there's nothing sadder than when I hear somebody say that their senior partner complained about them getting pregnant or pumping at work or whatever it is. That just makes me so sad when it's a female senior partner who, especially those who have children of their own, but honestly, those who don't, because we're socialized from an early age to think about these issues. I'd really like to think that we can all advocate for one another with some generosity. I
0: hear you. I've been a coach now for three years, and I could tell you that it's really fascinating to watch that the it's the fear that there will be a complaint that is the most harm, harmful, is that a lot of times mm-hmm. we will self-correct before a complaint is even made. And we make assumptions about what people will say and therefore adjust as if that was actually said out loud, because a lot of times people have some resentment for their partner And when I asked them, what did their partners say or do? And they said, I I don't know. I mean, nothing yet. So we are sometimes our own worst enemy. And and it's a cultural phenomenon in surgery that affects all of us, not just in gender, not just with maternity leave and such. But this idea of avoiding feeling lazy is probably Mm -hmm. one of the most harmful hidden thoughts that we have about and it, it shows up in how we overwork and it shows up in how we worry about call. This worry about being lazy is definitely something I've noticed in surgeons.
1: Well, that leads me to the thought of
0: the problem is it's both self-imposed
1: and somewhat real. Mm-hmm. And so it's hard to separate how much of it is a real expectation from other people and how much of it is self-imposed. And I find myself thinking about that all the time as a relatively junior person, how to Make sure I appear that I'm carrying my load, not just that I am carrying my load, that sort of thing. And I think that brings up an interesting point that the author of this book brings up too outside of medicine, but it's something that we hear about all the time from other women and has been demonstrated in data too, which are, is the way that women do receive complaints that men don't. And I think we're all aware of this sort of feeling that nursing staff... Other folks in hospitals can feel free to complain about kind of the attitudes or the personal interactions with female physicians, female surgeons in a way that they don't with male surgeons. She brought this up in the book in a chapter about female professors and their feedback was intensely more negative for very standard interactions than what male professors would receive and just how incredibly biased those feedback from students were. And I think that, again, felt really familiar to me, even though it was talking about a completely different setting, that we all know that women physicians receive more complaints, more complaints from other staff, more complaints from patients, more negative sort of variations of what might have been actually a pretty typical interaction. And that is something that's hard to combat. I really don't know, in the, as, particularly in these kind of anonymous reporting mechanisms that are important for hospitals to have. I don't know how to combat that other than just administration having to take into account that there is an unequal distribution of these types of complaints.
0: is a great point because there are so many layers. First is the idea that there will be more complaints in the first place. And I think being aware of the data and her studies that she's sharing about how it is more often that women are more criticized and more harshly criticized. So the awareness of it may be helpful for us to un- identify the underlying bias behind that. But the second part beyond complaining is the response was just be nicer, just smile more, give donuts. Right, exactly. And, and I think recognition of
1: gendered terms in these gendered terms that don't on their face seem gendered. Like if you read the term di- difficult and aggressive in a, Anonymous complaint about somebody, for example. like I think you and I immediately recognize that that is most likely a complaint about a woman. And that those are highly gendered terms that are used to criticize women who don't display typically female socialized traits. And that a man might actually get a a a positive commendation in that same regard that says how aggressive they are, and it doesn't mean the same thing. And so I think that's something also that people who get these, administrators who receive these and then decide what to act on, need to recognize things like that, crossing someone's arms, sort of complaints about physical nonverbal behavior isn't, is a highly gendered term that doesn't on its face seem particularly gendered.
0: Yeah. And we've seen a lot of these comparisons too before, like men are leaders and women are bossy and the mm. men are ambitious and women are overly aggressive and different things like that too. And even just the language of using women's first name and men's titles and things like that too. And all these microaggressions are, I think getting more to the surface of people pointing them out, and I think that is probably our most valuable asset, going back to the point of her book is that these are usually invisible things. So once yes. we make them visible, at the very least, then we can look at them and challenge them. So for me, when they are called out more often is to not speak to the whatever the specific complaint is, but speak to more of the issue, which is, of course, that everyone's perception is a little bit altered when you look at the the gender bias in the world. And why don't we talk about the gender bias and not the specific complaint either? Because that really is the issue. We can look at the the details of it, but this is the underlying issue is that we are treated differently. And simply being aware of that difference may also give us a better way, a better solution rather than to further strengthen the stereotype of just, well, she's saying you're not being nice. So if you could just be nicer and do these things that we expect of no one else, then.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. When I think what I have actually found it helpful on an individual level, this is obviously not a systemic fix, but that I've just taken it upon myself to start pointing that out to people who are in my life, whether it's partners at work, whether it's my husband, whether it's friends, just saying when they report a difficult interaction with somebody or something like that. And I just get that sense that there's something gendered in that. Just saying like, Hey, you may be totally right about this interaction. I wasn't there. I have no idea, but just maybe as a thought experiment, because the words I'm hearing you use, those are pretty classic for a certain amount of gender bias and I do this too women do it too think about what you how you might have reacted differently or how you might have interpreted this interaction differently if it was who you interacted with who said the same thing who behaved in the same way who had the same attitude do you think you really would have interpreted that exactly the same or do you think there would have been something different and with people and close to who are willing to go there including my husband who I said something similar to him when he was in training about an interaction with one of his attendings, because he's a physician as well. And he really took that to heart and thought about it and was like, yeah, I still don't know if I'd be a huge fan of this person. But I think my interpretation of this interaction would have been really different. So I have found that to be helpful. And I've brought up to my department chair, who's male, interactions, and I'm like, just maybe think about what this might have sounded like coming from somebody else. And like to people who are open to it, you can get a pretty good response and maybe actually make a difference, at least at
0: the individual level. I completely agree. And finding it early, when you start to feel like something is off, is to really tap into the curiosity of it and asking questions of yourself and asking questions of the other people, because curiosity is going to get you so much further than anger and frustration and resentment will get you. And sometimes if you're really angry, I said, sometimes we can't get quite to the clean curiosity, maybe simply fast fascination, like you're looking at a fascinating zoo animal, because at least gets you in a more productive space. Because a lot of times people attribute a lot of things under the blanket of gender bias, which I think sometimes hurts us a little bit too. Because if you say it's because I'm a a woman, then we make a, a bigger issue and miss a smaller issue too. So really getting curious of what exactly is setting me off? And what exactly is the issue?
1: Well, this is where we can draw a big comparison between racial and ethnic bias and gender bias too, where the cultural prototype, which is the white 70 kilogram man, what people who fit into that kind of general characteristic don't necessarily understand, is the degree to which it's a struggle to determine what is or isn't gender bias. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of men would be shocked how frequently I have to go to one of my partners who's the same age as me, the same time out of training very similar kind of practice pattern in terms of have, have how we take care of patients. I have to say, hey, how often do patients ask you in clinic how many times you've done a surgery? And he says, oh, like, I don't know, maybe once a year. And I'm like, okay, that happens to me like twice a clinic. So that is a real difference that happens. Or versus me saying, or this resident behaved in this really defensive way, They didn't seem to want to listen to me. Do they do that to you too? Or uh, is this a woman thing? Because you, you just don't know. I, I remember hearing a similar story that clarified for me how pervasive that can be and how damaging that can be to your own internal thought process. I had a friend who's Black and said, the problem is for me, I don't know if somebody, if I'm walking down the street at night and somebody crosses the street ahead of me, I don't know if they cross the street because they're going that direction or if they cross the street because they're afraid of me or if they cross the street because they're actively racist and they don't like Black people. And I have to think about that in every interaction I have every day, all day, all the time. And I think women have to deal with that too. It's to a lesser and a different degree. But that feeling of like, wait, the patient act that way to me because I'm a woman. Did they act that way to me because of a certain level of health literacy or they don't understand or because I did a bad job communicating or it's always this little bug that you can't quite clear of why did that interaction happen and is any part of it my gender or am I just being defensive by assuming it was my gender so yeah. it's really difficult and then someone will be like oh I don't play the woman card or something in the discussion and then you really feel stupid
0: so it's yes, really challenging. I see this a lot too yeah, where I could tell that they have been ineffective in interaction um, for various reasons because typically our thoughts will color what we show up as. <laughs> So in an interaction, if someone is intimidating to you, so you feel intimidated, you come from an intimidated place and they respond to that you're being intimidated. And then you're like, oh, it's because I'm a girl. I was like that, well, it's probably both, but you can't change the fact that you're a girl. So let's stop arguing with reality. We are girls. So now what are we gonna do? (laughs) So I think incorporating and there's gender bias and I can look at this interaction a little bit more. And we can argue that it's extra stuff and it's not fair, but well, the reality is we're still girls. We're still girls in society where there's differences. But if you take it to the most neutral aspect, then we can notice the reality, not argue with it, and figure out a way for us to interact in the world to help potentially change it for the better.
1: Yeah, and I think ultimately the hard part is always like what to do about this. We always know we all know this exists. We all know that correcting one interaction or one person won't fix the problem. And I think that's what I found so motivating about reading this. Well, if we can collect the data, if we can prove that these things are real and exist, then maybe that does change some of the structures. Or maybe it allows us to at least make small changes in some of these structures. Maybe something that was a joke, that's a joke to all of us, like see how long the women's bathroom line is you can look at it and say, oh, that is actually a health problem. Like women have urinary tract infections and and, bladder capacity issues and detrusor muscle damage because we actually, in a structural way, don't build enough bathrooms for women. And then you can go, great, well, let's change the building codes. Let's do something different. And so that's like a physical example, obviously completely unrelated. But if you recognize that these differences really exist and if you can prove to the right people that they exist, then maybe there's
0: some ability to actually make structural change. Absolutely, and that's why I like the title of her book about it being invisible. So when we make what's invisible visible, now we have the chance to point it out and then some change can happen. But pointing it out in a way that's gonna be effective um, is where I think we have a little bit of work to make sure that it's effective. Right. Speaking of invisible stuff, let's talk about invisible work, because I think that this is true for everyone, but certainly more women, too. There's invisible work at work, and there's invisible work at home. So let's think of the invisible work at home that I know that she mentioned, and some people call this the second shift. What is your take on invisible work at home?
1: I feel like my personal experience and my anecdotal experience from everyone around me is actually really different. And... I feel incredibly lucky and like, maybe that's part of the problem. I feel incredibly lucky, but I have a husband who is, I think we're about as close to 50, 50 partners and dividing the labor as about anyone I've ever met in that he takes a significant amount of that kind of final shift of the day. We really split the time after we get home from work really, really equally. He just arranges the kids summer camps and I don't have to do it. He'll call the babysitter. And I don't honestly have many friends who have had that experience with particularly male partners of just sort of taking it on themselves without necessarily having to be asked. I still feel, feel like there's that kind of baseline, cultural built-in, baked-in expectation where it's like, well, it's, it's my job, but he's doing it. But he's not the one who makes me feel that way. If anything, it's me that makes me feel that way because that's what we're socialized to believe and again i spend a lot of time feeling incredibly thankful and lucky for that and in sweden where people are forced to take paternal leave and so men then kind of just start to know their kids in a way that a lot of american men just don't and don't honestly get the opportunity to and it's kind of sad they know what their kids eat and how frequently and when they go to the bathroom because they've taken care of them for some percentage of their infancy. And in my personal experience, I was in just a more demanding training program when we had our kids and we didn't we couldn't afford to hire additional childcare or anything like that. We lived in San Francisco and rent and nanny was rent and just our baseline nanny was everything we had. So my husband just had no no other choice but to step up and do the do the work and i think that's the advice i usually give to friends who are in the starting period of this don't let them hire a sitter when they're home alone with the kid that's their kid they have to learn to do it and they learn to do it now then when your kid is our kids are four and six like mine like maybe they will just call the babysitter or set up the summer camps without you asking them, or maybe they'll just know what to feed them for lunch without you having to tell them, those sort of things. Mm-hmm. So some of it I think is the setup from the beginning.
0: Right, and I liked in the book how she described, I think Iceland where there was the the longest Friday where there was a strike on Friday, all the women quit, like no work <laughs> at work and no work at home. Uh, so they started to realize like, this is actually what I'm doing. And I think the most important thing is not who's doing what, it's the understanding that's helpful. It's the invisible part that is a problem. Like when it's invisible, we don't know what we're doing. So a lot of times it doesn't seem fair to the other person, male or female, to say, I'm gonna do all this. I'm not gonna tell you about it. We're not gonna have an understanding about it. And I'm gonna mad at you for not noticing. Right,
1: yeah, and I think that's such a common experience that we assume the work is our work. Our partner doesn't even know the work exists. And then we do the work and it's done. So our partner still doesn't know the work exists. Yeah. And it's hard because on one hand, I, I don't want to blame the victim and put all the responsibility on women to make men realize that. I think what men have a responsibility to realize what their partner's doing because they're adults and they have every ability to be curious and involved as, as we do. But it is hard. You're correcting for this gender norm in society that's not easy to correct for. So right. I think it's a joint responsibility and men take responsibility for it too. But it is true that like if we don't make the work visible to them, then how do they know that it's there?
0: Right. And I like the steps that I've seen before about open communication, saying, let's just talk about all the things that we're doing and then delegating and sharing responsibilities like this is yours and this is mine. I'm very lucky. My husband's a stay-at-home dad and he does all the work. I'm your stereotypical dad, which is, it's funny because at our school, one of our daughters was on cheer and they had a cheer mom's group and he was not allowed to be on that because he's a man. I was like, don't put me on it. I have no idea what's going on. So he, he took a lot of offense to that. And so th- there's definitely some societal part, but by communicating and fighting it and saying that, you know, this is really what, this is our division at home. And if you want mm-hmm. my kid to show up to practice, he's going to have to be on here. <laughs> and it, and well, it's it fine. That brings up like the structural
1: parts too. I don't know how many men I've heard complain about this, but how many men's restrooms have a changing table in them? Like, it's becoming more common, but it's still really uncommon. And I had a friend who is a stay-at-home dad who was like, it's so hard. I have to change my kid on the floor of the bathroom because almost no men's restrooms have changing tables. How do we expect men to step up and take their part of the responsibility? And that's a cultural responsibility too. But yeah, I think you're right. Even just having the changing table in the men's restroom makes that work visible, even if they're not doing it. You know, they walk in, they go, oh, huh, I guess I could have changed the kid's diaper too. But if you don't walk in and you don't see that changing table, you didn't even think about the fact that your wife just
0: automatically assumed that she needed to change the diaper. And, and I think communicating saying, all right, it's your turn now. And Absolutely. I mean a little bit that is on us to do so, but the only way to really combat invisible work is to not make it invisible anymore and working on the idea of boundaries boundaries are always a bit of a challenge to do if we think about the five steps of a, of a boundary is one is identifying what it is of saying like there's a certain amount of work for you to do and work for me to do and then you making sure it's communicated because a lot of times we think well they should do it half the time well we're assuming that they know that that we think that they should do it half the time so right. th- then another thing is like what's the consequence if the boundary is violated well if the kids not change, I'm going to tell you or something like that. Yeah. And and then backing it up and doing that from a place of understanding and communication rather than from resentment. Because a lot of times I think we don't communicate it or we don't speak up and we wait and let it stew and then say, and this is why this, the world is unfair, <laughs> which, yeah, absolutely.
1: I mean, at some point I realized that I, Uh, I was texting my husband after a long day where like my cases hadn't gone like I wanted to and I'm exhausted and like extra emotionally exhausted. And I text him like, I am so exhausted. And I usually do the cooking in our family, mostly because I actually really, really like to cook and I find it to be a way to decompress at the end of the day, but I assumed that he would know that meant that I didn't want to cook that night and that he should just like order some food or figure something out. But of course, that's like mind reading. And he didn't know that. And so I would get resentful when I come home. He'd be like, what's for dinner? And I'm like, I don't know. I've been working hard all day. I'm tired. I've been standing up the whole day and my back hurts and my shoulders hurt and I just need to sit and stare at a wall. So. I don't really care, figure something out. And then he'd be mad because I was mad and it like kind of comes this interaction that really doesn't go well. And eventually we sat down and he's like, I don't know why you're mad when this happens. And I say, said, when I text you that I'm tired and I don't want to cook, so I'll add, I don't want to cook. And then I just need you. I don't care how you get food. Just order something deliberately, whatever, order something for me. I don't care what it is. I won't complain, but I just need you to do it. And then it was like, oh, okay, great. And now that he does that, and it's not a problem. And I'm not resentful when I get home after already a tough day. And actually communicating the challenge really helps.
0: Yes. And this goes to another book recommendation. And I actually have the summary on BossSurgery.com. It's under How Surgeons Rise. But this is about the book, How Women Rise by Helgeson and Goldsmith. So this book is fantastic. It talks about 12 habits holding women back at work. And it tells about... Our tendency to not speak up. And they articulated many of the habits are related to reluctance to claim achievement and expecting other people to spontaneously notice and expecting people to understand what we're doing. So the idea of invisible work is simply Mm -hmm. recognizing that there is a gender biased hesitancy to speak up. And when we're aware of it, then it helps to get a strategy for, for how to do so. So if you go to dot I have a little handout that put these specifically to surgeons, but it lists those habits. And you'll start to identify the reason why some of the work that we have is invisible, because it's just how we've been, I don't know, interacting with the world, and, and it's unconscious how that has worked. I haven't read that. So I'll definitely have to check that out. That
1: sounds like a great suggestion. I think The thing that kind of bothers me is sometimes when it goes to just the like lean in place. We actually had a women in surgery group where we read Lean In when I was in residency. And what I found frustrating about that and what I liked about the way this book, Invisible Women, contextualized the kind of challenges at work a little bit better and more completely, I thought, is that Lean In has this thesis of like, just behave like a man and then recognize how you're not behaving like a man and then just behave like a man. And what I think Carolyn Criado Perez brings up in this book is like, but you can't just do that because the way you're interpreted is also different when you're a woman. And she brings up these studies that show that again, kind of that same thing we were talking about that women, when they say the exact same thing are thought of as aggressive or achievement demanding in a way. And so I think that having that data And bringing that to the right people can be helpful in terms of not just correcting the way we behave and saying, just be like a man, but also correcting the way that women are interpreted by men and other women. And I think that's the part that's honestly a lot harder to do, obviously, but I think it's helpful to think about that way and not necessarily put all the responsibility on women to behave differently, even though I do think that's part of it too, that we have to recognize the ways in which we don't advocate for ourselves.
0: Yeah. And that's what I really liked about her, their book is that it, it wasn't like an indictment or anything like that. It was just saying like, this is mm-hmm. what we noticed. And what's helpful is when you say this was the invisible thing that you feel that you can't quite put right. your finger on. And here I'm articulating in a way to where now the solution is very obvious. So mm-hmm. that's what I really liked about the book. And that's why um, I summarize these books for myself then uh, my my virtual assistant made it pretty so it's really nice to look at it too and i use this so i could reference back to it often to check in with myself as a bit of an evaluation of saying am i reluctant to claim my achievements am i too focused on my job and not focused on my career am i trying to have that disease to please that they talk about and a lot of tendencies that we traditionally have of that we can come up with a strategy to give, and it doesn't have to be looking back at the past of why it worked the way it worked. It's just saying, Oh, look, I noticed this, and now I don't have to worry about it anymore because now that I see it, I can't unsee it, and we're going to make sure no one else unsees it either.
1: Yeah, I think that's really great. I'll definitely have to check out that book. And I don't know, speaking of making invisible visible, I wanted to bring up one other thing just because I thought that this was, again, a thing that I think a lot of women know exists, a lot of women surgeons know exists, but isn't well talked about. And most male surgeons don't know exists, which is there is an entire chapter in this book on equipment, like work equipment, basically, it does not mention surgeons in it anywhere. But like, every bit of this, I was like, yes, women are injured. In many physical manual jobs, women are injured at hugely higher rates than men. And it's largely because the equipment isn't built for them. And ooh, I actually have to look this up again. I believe there's a study that even confirms this in surgeons too, that surgeons have more workplace injuries and like repetitive motion injuries than men, than male surgeons. But I think that all of us are familiar with the getting the needle driver our partner likes, the laparoscopic needle driver our partner likes, and like, you can't even work it with your hands. I mean, the ones they provide for FLS, those black candle needle drivers are like impossible to use for me. I I literally can't even click them and unclick them with my hand. I wear a size six, and that's not even a small hand for a woman, but it's really challenging. The endo-GIA stapler that we have, the automatic endo-GIA stapler that the rep told me is supposed to be one-handed, I absolutely can barely hold in one hand. I can't reach the close button. I frequently, when I'm trying to hit the close button, it'll articulate because the way that the sort of trigger is positioned is like at the barely at the tip of my finger and I can't push it without putting lateral pressure on it. And so I constantly ask our our reps, hey, have you guys thought about maybe testing these with women and designing a stapler that could be used one handed for somebody who has an average of 41% lower grip strength and 0.8 inches shorter hand than a man. And they often have never even heard of this. I'm shocked, usually the reps response is what? a female surgeon about this. They're like, oh yeah, yeah, I hold it with my belly while I'm hitting the trigger too.
0: Yes. And this is a callback to another episode. So Gita Lal has done a lot of work. She was the founder of the Society of Surgical Ergonomics and- (laughs) So she's really worked a lot on us doing this to allow our careers to be longer. And some of it is simply the recognition that it just wasn't built for us. You know, the instruments don't fit, the the PPE doesn't fit and the table heights and all these things are really important. For making sure that our careers are longer, because if our careers are longer, our patients are taken care of, and you have more surgeons of the workforce. So recognizing that there are differences can be helpful, and us speaking up and saying, "Hey, I noticed this, and this is harder, and can't you can't you fix this?" is um, I think really important. And I think her work with that with the society has been very helpful. And she does she even has mm-hmm. like I know a coaching program to where they have someone assess like, your actual ergonomics and optimizing yeah. them to make sure your careers and your health are prolonged.
1: I think this is a problem that's brought up in a thousand and one cuts too. And I know that whoever runs their social media account, like frequently sort of retweets these things and stuff like that complaints about the way that equipment is not sort of tested for built for, or the way that women's surgeons experiences and their patients essentially, you know, cause when we're ignored, our patients are ignored, yeah. um, are not even taken into account And so I think it's one of those things that's twofold, right? There's some responsibility on us to learn about ergonomics. I take a lot of time teaching female residents, like don't use forceps so much, grab a coker, throw a clamp on it. Like your grip strength is not as strong as the average male surgeon. And it's actually not even a trainable difference. So don't fatigue your hand. Don't have your thumb go numb like my did mine did on Wednesday. (laughs) And in a long case, like think about how you're holding things, use the ratcheting on the, on the grasper, use a clamp instead of a forcep on the fascia and like really give yourself the advantage. You know, here's how I hold the stapler with my belly while I hit it with my other hand and have somebody grab the reticulating mechanism because, um, Otherwise they have to figure it out on their own. So I try to teach them the things that I've learned sort of through trial and error and hurting myself. But then also, I think it is the responsibility of the industry, the institutions we work for to protect us too, and to think about us. So that's something I think that, again, it doesn't work unless we make it visible. So we have to talk about it. We have to bring it up to the industry folks. And ultimately then I think it is the responsibility of, you know, Ethicon and Covidian to go test their equipment with people with smaller hands. Because it's not just female surgeons with smaller hands, but that is obviously an average difference. But there's some some responsibility from the structural side to change things in a way that we don't have to hurt ourselves to take good care of our patients. Because as we all know from a recent study, there's actually evidence we take better care of patients. So <laughs> Exactly. We need to support women surgeons to have long careers because
0: it's good for patients to have women
1: surgeons in the field.
0: Well, just like you pointed out, you know, calling back to the beginning of the episode when you talked about women coming in, changing the culture and showing a different way to do things. I think that's what the study that that you mentioned by showing that we do take better care of people tells us there's a different way of going about things. So now we can all benefit from it. Now we make this, you know, all genders can benefit from simply pointing out the difference of that too. So acknowledging our differences, acknowledging the invisible things that that have been invisible for a long time and making them visible is definitely a good way for us to, you know, start this conversation of how do we go beyond the gender bias part of noticing it and starting to make some actual change. Absolutely. I totally agree. Well, this <laughs> Has been such a great conversation, uh, Dr. Brooks, and thank you so much for coming on and for helping me tackle the really large topic of this in, in a way that is is both really informative and practical. And I think a lot of people are going to benefit from it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. I, I really enjoyed it, and definitely, I'm going to put a plug in that I strongly recommend everybody go out and get either the audiobook. I got it from my public library, so. Don't even have to buy it, but then I loved it so much. I bought a paperback copy that I could mark up as well. So Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez. She also has a podcast associated with it too, I believe, although I haven't listened to it yet. So, And I think it's largely addressing the
0: same topics as the book. Yes. And also mentioning how women rise again, go to dot to get the summary of that, of those habits, holding women back at work. And we also mentioned a thousand and one cuts. That's a film as well, as well as, you know, a social media account. So checking out some of those things will help you start to identify some of the things that are related to gender bias. So we can ha- start making these more visible and start making some real change. Absolutely. Thanks so much. For more information on the boss business of surgery series, go to dot